following audio is from a sermon series called Rebuilding the Ruins. The story of Ezra and Nehemiah begin with the people of God in Babylonian exile due to their unfaithfulness. The God of heaven, who is faithful to his promises, then stirs up and empowers his people to walk anew in faithfulness and rebuild the ruins. For more information about Sacred City Moline, please visit scmoline.com. Hear the word of the Lord from Ezra 7, 11 to 28. This is a copy of the letter that King Artaxerxes gave to Ezra the priest, the scribe, a man learned in matters of the commandments of the Lord and his statues for Israel. Artaxerxes, king of kings, to Ezra the priest, the scribe of the law of the God of heaven, peace. And now I make a decree that any one of the people of Israel or their priests or Levites in my kingdom who freely offers to go to Jerusalem may go with you. For you are sent by the king and his seven counselors to make inquiries about Judah and Jerusalem according to the law of your God, which is in your hand, and also to carry the silver and gold that the king and his counselors have freely offered to the God of Israel, whose dwelling is in Jerusalem, with all the silver and gold that you shall find in the whole province of Babylonia, and with the freewill offerings of the people and the priests, vowed willingly for the house of their God that is in Jerusalem. With this money, then, you shall with all diligence buy bulls, rams, and lambs, with their grain offerings and their drink offerings, and you shall offer them on the altar of the house of your God that is in Jerusalem. Whatever seems good to you and your brothers to do with the rest of the silver and gold, you may do, according to the will of your God. The vessels have been given you given you for the service of the house of your God, you shall deliver before the God of Jerusalem. And whatever else is required for the house of your God, which it falls to you to provide, you may provide it out of the king's treasury. And I, Artaxerxes, the king, make a decree to all the treasurers in the province beyond the river, whatever Ezra the priest, the scribe of the law of God of heaven, requires of you, Let it be done with all diligence, up to 100 talents of silver, 100 cores of wheat, 100 baths of wine, 100 baths of oil, and salt without prescribing how much. Whatever is decreed by the God of heaven, let it be done in full for the house of the God of heaven. Least his wrath be against the realm of the king and his sons. We also notify you that it shall not be lawful to impose tribute custom or toll, or any one of the priests, the Levites, the singers, the doorkeepers, the temple servants, or other servants of this house of God. And you, Ezra, according to the wisdom of your God that is in your hand, appoint magistrates and judges who may judge all the people in the province beyond the river, all such as know the laws of your God. And those who do not know them you shall teach." Whoever will not obey the law of your God and the law of the king, let judgment be strictly executed on him, whether for death or for banishment or for the consecration of his goods or for imprisonment. Blessed be the Lord, the God of our fathers, who put such a thing as this into the heart of the king to beautify the house of the Lord that is in Jerusalem and who extended to me his steadfast love before the king and his counselors. And before all the king's mighty officers, I took courage, for the hand of my Lord was God, I'm sorry, for the hand of the Lord was God was on me, and I gathered leading men from Israel to go up with me. This is the word of the Lord. If you've been around Sacred City Church for a while, you've probably become accustomed to our pastoral welcome every week for all who are weary and long for rest, those who mourn and desire comfort and and, and we go through that. It's really an invitation for anybody and all people to come. The Lord stands ready to receive you just as you are. And at the tail end of that pastoral welcome almost every week, because I change it up from time to time, but almost every single time, the final thing is, and anybody who is tired of the brokenness, who, who longs for all of the brokenness in this world to be made right, come. The Lord stands ready to receive you. This is a general appeal for anybody and everybody. 
whether you are a, a, a faithful disciple of Jesus, walking with him day in and day out, or you're, you're just now hearing who Jesus is for the first time that's offering this welcome. It's a call, a general appeal for anybody and everybody who is fed up with the destructive force of sin in this world, not just in the world, but it's ransacking our lives. In the Lord's Prayer, the prayer that Jesus teaches his disciples to pray, Revelation 22, it's, it's sort of the final, it's, it's the end cap of, of the entirety of Scripture where the Apostle John is writing. Both Jesus and the Apostle John uh, affirm this holy discontentment that we feel in our souls, that longing, that hunger for all things to be made right. Jesus teaches us to pray for it in the Lord's Prayer. It would be on earth as it is in heaven. What is that? This, this discontentment with the earth. We're longing for heaven to come down. Or, or the Apostle John, when he closes off the book of Revelation, who pleads, come, Lord Jesus, come. This is right for Christians. It's right, honestly, for all people to feel this discontentment within the world. But for Christians, it doesn't just stop with longing for this. It doesn't stop with longing for the new heavens and the new earth to come. It doesn't stop with prayers. Because if it does, well, we, we become the frozen chosen. We, we become the folks who sit and wait and wish. I think that's Jack Johnson, sitting, waiting, wish. Or John Mayer, waiting for the world to change. What are we to do? We just sit there, hands tied, just waiting. But not for the Christian. Not for the Christian. Through conviction from the word of God, through the courage of the Holy Spirit, the Christian takes action. The Christian is given agency, the ability to do something, to set our minds and our hearts and our affections and our energy toward something meaningful, to work toward what we want to see. In other words, the Christian has the capacity to work for reformation to build something better than what we have, to see something more godly replace that which is godless. Now, last week, Pastor Rob was here filling the pulpit for me, very grateful for the week off, and, and what he did in the time behind the pulpit was show us the recipe for reformation, the essential components that have to be present Amongst God's people, amongst the church, if we want to see and be part of Reformation. Three things. First is the Word of God. The Word of God must be present. Without the Word of God, there is no Reformation. Then you have men and women of that Word. Men and women who will commit to living out, to loving, to feasting on the Word of God. And then you have to have the hand of God, the providence of God. All three of those things have to be Presence. See, the word of God is, is the central fixture of the Reformation. Every Reformation. Whether you talk about the, the Protestant Reformation in 1517, you go to the great First Great Awakening, the Second Great Awakening, you go back into the New Testament, what, what the apostles are doing there, they're working for Reformation. You go back to the Old Testament, go to King David, go to Daniel, go to King Hezekiah, working for Reformation. What's there? The word of God. The word of God is the central fixture of Reformation. So much so, the motto of the Reformation was semper reformata. The, the word of God, or reform, the church reforming, reform, oh my goodness, I messed it up. The church reformed and always reforming according to the word of God. It's very important. Not, it, it's a reforming to the word of God, not just my opinion, not the, the secular culture stream that's, that's pulling the church in one way or the, the church reforming according to the word of God. Now, it's interesting. If you, if you read about the power of the word of God, because that's, that's what it is. The word of God is a power. The word of God, the same words that came from the mouth of God that created the cosmos, that, that spoke and boom, it was out of nothing. That same power is wrapped up in the word of God. Hebrews 4.14 says it's, it's living and active, sharper than a two-edged sword, dividing bone from marrow and spirit from soul. The word of God is power. And what's interesting, when you read about the Reformation, you read about those great awakenings, 
what people are rubbing up against in those experiences is the power of the word of God. Listen to this quote from Martin Luther. He says, I simply taught, preached, and wrote God's word. Otherwise, I did nothing. And while I slept or drank Wittenberg beer with my friends, the word so greatly weakened the papacy that no prince or emperor ever inflicted such losses upon it. I did nothing. The word did everything. That's the kind of power the word of God has. And when we see the power of the word of God, it's taking effect in the lives of men and women. You, you find where there is reformation, where the word of God is present, you find men and women, people of the book, people who are feasting on the word of God, loving the word of God, who are obeying the word of God, who are teaching the word of God, living out courageously their lives in relationship to the word of God. Which is why we have dubbed this year Feast to Flourish. We want to have that kind of relationship with the Word of God. To study it, to love it, to do it, to teach it boldly and faithfully, no matter how unpopular it might be viewed through the lens of our society. And the third piece is God's hand. Reformation, to take place, must have the Word of God, the people of God responding to the Word of God properly, and then Movement, God's hand upon the people, upon the work in a certain moment, unique moment in time. We see this movement of the Holy Spirit that undergirds all of the Reformation, everyone. And as we come to the second half of the book of Ezra, we find that this section, this part, part two of Ezra, is all about this kind of Reformation. Part one of Ezra, chapters one through six, is about rebuilding the temple from chapter seven on, is about reformation, changing a society. It's giving a blueprint for a Christian society, a flourishing society, a growing and increasing and multiplying society. It's a vision for a shared life that goes on beyond the walls of the temple, that reveres God, that honors him and glorifies him. Now, when we tend to talk about Reformation, we typically isolate, we, we say, okay, well, Reformation can only happen within the context of a church. Like, that's, that's the primary domain. We're talking about Reformation. It's only going on in this compartment of the church. Now, Reformation starts there. Judgment begins with the house of the Lord. But Reformation is not meant to end there, to stop at the four walls of the temple, four walls of the church. Reformation is meant to seep out. It goes from being something personal that moves into our homes, into our missional communities, into our church, and goes even further from there into our city, our nation, this continent, the globe, so that it would be as Jesus tells us to pray on earth as it is in heaven. It's not just a wish for someday way out there, but incrementally on earth as it would be in heaven. See, that's the aim of reformation. That's the aim of revival. It is nothing short of seeing a Christian society unfold right before us. Not just, not just within the church, but one that expands out to everything underneath the sun, now, there might be different reactions. As I say, a Christian society, that, that's a term that, that a lot of people have different reactions to. Some people might say, okay, well, aren't we already a Christian society? And in 2019, 65% of Americans identified as Christian, self-identified as Christian, 65%. I mean, it seems that if we're anything, we, we must be a Christian society. I could, I could step out this front door here and throw a rock in any direction, and I could hit another church. Right? There's, there's a saturation of churches in the United States. In fact, you can go back to the founding documents of our country. Go back to the Mayflower Compact that was written as they were writing over on the Mayflower of what kind of government, what kind of order they're going to create in a society. It's, it's wildly Christian. 
Go, go back beyond our own constitution of the nation and go to the constitution of the states and see, you can see it for yourselves. They had intentions of building a Christian society. That, that's one of the things, one of the primary motivations for coming across the ocean was to build a truly Christian society. Now, we've come a long way from then, and unfortunately, not necessarily for the better. There, there may have been bright moments where the United States was, in fact, a Christian society, or at least on a tra trajectory toward that reality. But more and more, we've been inching toward and inching toward, I say inching because sometimes it feels like a full-out sprint, we've been inching toward a post-Christian society, a society that leaves the Bible and Christianity in the rearview mirror and says, we can blaze our own path from here. We've got it. Thanks for getting us this far, Jesus. What's going on in this has been an unhitching from the word of God. Not just the Old Testament, as some pastors might suggest we need to do, which I think is absolutely foolish because here we are in the book of Ezra, but, but a total unhitching from the word of God. And with that, when you unhitch from the word of God, you unhitch yourself from the true church of God. And we see this inching towards a post-Christian society, not only in the culture, not only in the influencers of the world, but it has seeped into our legislation. See, legislation will always follow the culture. Whatever the culture wants, the legislation will eventually get back behind. Now, the crazy part is you, you see this movement away from the word of God. This doesn't just happen on the coasts. This doesn't just happen in campus towns. This is going on right here in the Quad Cities. In 2019, Barna, uh, a research agency does a lot of research re regarding things, uh, the nature of, of the church. Study, did a poll and see which, what, what cities are the least or are the most post-Christian cities. Do you want to know where the Quad Cities ranked on that? Top 100. Number 15. 52% of the Quad Cities, based upon the standard of what makes one post-Christian, Check the box for being post-Christian. Our society, our city, is in desperate need of reformation. The, the more we slip away from the word of God, the darker things become. The church must push back the darkness with the light of Christ. Now, other people hear this word Christian society, and I think this is the tendency with people who are outside of the church. They bristle up against this, and they don't like it very much. And even you're starting to see even more with Christians within the church would say, listen, that's not our place. We got enough going on in the church. We don't need to worry about influencing a society or building a society. That's not our domain. Let's stick to our little churches let, let's, let's try to keep our head down, be, be detached, kind of connected, but a little bit detached from the culture, like kind of have this, um, this monastery mentality at, at best. It's like we'll, we'll do our own thing and kind of isolate. Or otherwise, it's like, hey, we'll just we'll kind of keep our distinctiveness and try to please the rest of society. We'll keep our head down. We'll be happy with, with the ground that the, the culture gives us that we can at least get together and worship freely on Sunday mornings. We'll just be happy that we're tolerated. Th this is a growing opinion about this, about, the, about a, a Christian society. And you can see this in that 56% of Christians say that, a, that faith is an entirely private matter. That my faith gets locked up in my chest and it's not for my community to know anything about. It's not for my church to know about. It's not for any, any of my unbelieving neighbors and friends and coworkers to know about. My faith is this thing for me in Jesus. That's it. And so the idea of a Christian society or moving toward a Christian society is just throw it out the window. Now that view, to, to view this mentality, to have this mentality about building a Christian society is a product of Christians who have been swayed by or, or held hostage by this post-Christian world. 
Christians who have forgotten the anthem that sings, this is my father's world. Christians who have forgotten the command that Jesus gives his disciples to disciple the nations, all of the world underneath the lordship of Jesus. People who forget their identity as the salt of the earth, as the city on a hill that is not meant to be hidden. God wants to reform the world. He wants to change our society, not just our churches. God does this incrementally through his people as they push back darkness. Now, this is why God sent Jesus into the world, to save the world. He, he could have sent Jesus to the world to condemn the world, but John 3, 16 and 17 tells us he did not come to condemn the world, but to save the world, to bring the light with him. As Christians, we should not only want to see the light push back the darkness, we should not only pray for the light to push back the darkness or the kingdom of God to come, but we ought to work for it. And so today, what I want to do is show you three things. I want to show you three things as what it pertains to a Christian society. One, what is a Christian society? How do we define that? What are the, what are the characteristics of a Christian society? Number two, I want to show you why we should actually want it. Why we shouldn't be ashamed to say, I would love to see a Christian society unfold right before my eyes. Number two, or three, how we go about building it. Those are the things. What is a Christian society? Why we want it? Why we should want it? And three, how we go about building it. This brings us to Ezra chapter 7, verse 11. Last week, for the first time, Ezra enters the story he has returned to Jerusalem. He's been sent back to Jerusalem in verses 1 through 10 by the king, King Artaxerxes, to teach the word of God to the people of God. And what we're told about Ezra is that he is a man of the word. He's a man of the book. He's a scribe. He's an expert of the law of God. You might even think of him as a lawyer. He, he knows the word of God so thoroughly, just like a lawyer of the land here does know the law of our land, that's how Ezra knew the word of the Lord. He loved the word. He studied the word. He was learned in the word. He did it. He taught it. We see Ezra. We see the word of God. And verse 6 tells us that God's hand was upon him. Now, all of the pieces of Reformation are right here. The word of God, a man or woman of God, and the movement of God, the hand of God. And verses 11 through 28 indicate how thoroughly God's hand was upon Ezra. Now, we have seen God's hand. We've seen the eye of the Lord be upon his people as they work. We've seen God intervene in ways that, that man could not do for themselves. God has broken down walls. The iron gates have collapsed in front of him. And God has made a way for his people over and over and over again through the book of Ezra. And once again, we have all kinds of evidences here that God's hand was upon them. Now, because we've heard these so earlier, I'm going to move through these quickly. But here in verse 11, I guess actually it goes down, it starts in verse, um, well, yeah, in 11. It starts talking about this, this letter. It's a letter from the desk of King Artaxerxes. And what he does in the beginning of this letter is pronounces his blessing and provision upon Ezra and the work that's going on in Jerusalem. First, in verse 13, he gives permission to the exiles. The whole story started with, with the people of Jerusalem exiled in Babylonian captivity. They, they've sort of been uh, immigrants there. And, and King Art says, you know what, if you want to go back home, you can go back home. That's okay. That, that, to see the king give up some kind of grip over power of, of people he has control and dominion over, you see he relinquishes that. You can go back to Jerusalem. And then as Ezra goes, not only does he get people to go along with him, verse 15 tells us, that King Art loads him up with gold and silver. The, the, the treasury of the king is basically bestowed upon him. Whatever you need, I got you, is what he says. Then he's given money for sacrifices, and there's abundant, abundance of it, so, so abundant that he says, hey, whatever extra, whatever surplus you have, feel free to do with it what God says you ought to do with it. 
And then in verse 19, these, these gold and silver vessels that were plundered, when, when the Babylonians plundered Jerusalem, they, they took all of those, those prized vessels with them, sort of as, as trophies, and King Art says, you can have them back. Take them back to the temple where they belong. Verse 22, he, he issues a decree that the other nations that are beyond the river, that, that are near and around the surrounding area of Jerusalem, would continue to bankroll the house of God. He lists out uh, a bunch of different things. Like, where is it? Um, verse, somebody help me. Verse 22, 100 talents of silver, 100 cores of wheat, 100 baths of wine. Right on. 100 baths of oil, salt without prescribing how much. Like he gives them everything that they need. And in verse 24, he gives them major tax breaks. Like one of the beginning, the fears initially when they're adversaries of the people of Israel, one of the things that they were stirring up uh, fear within the king was, hey, listen, if you let them go, they're not going to pay your taxes. They're, they're going to leave you high and dry. So don't, don't, don't release them. And here, King Artaxerxes releases them of tax obligations, specifically for the people who are working in the temple. In this, you see all of these things, one, two, three, four, five, six major evidences that God's hand is undeniably upon the situation here and upon the man of Ezra. Now, not only does King Art make all these provisions and say, go back, hey, take this stuff with you, he gives a commandment, a decree to Ezra to go and build a Christian society. Check this out, verse 25. And you, Ezra, according to the wisdom of your God that is in your hand, appoint magistrates and judges who may judge all the people in the providence beyond the river. All such as know the laws of your God and those who do not yet know them, you shall teach. Now, this is crazy. For a pagan god, the, the, the king or pagan king of Persia, to go and say, go build, go build a society based upon the law of God. Go, go create a series of laws, create order, build a government, appoint magistrates and judges. It's not according to Persian law. It would be advantageous, though, for Artaxerxes to send him off and say, hey, go replicate what we got going on in Persia. He doesn't do that. He says, to build it according to what? Verse 25, according to the wisdom of your God that is in your hand. Now, if you go back up to verse 14, it, it expresses specifically what the wisdom of God is that is in the hand of Ezra. He says, the wisdom that is in your hand is the law of the Lord, the law of Moses. It's the word of God. The statutes, the commands that God has been given, that has given to his people leading up to that moment in time that have been preserved. Now, it's interesting here, this phrase, in your hand, for me, it reminds me of Moses standing before the burning bush. This is right before God calls Moses up to, to lead the Israelites out of Egyptian slavery, long, cruel slavery under a tyrannical pagan king. God chooses Moses. He calls him from a burning bush, a bush, bush that's burning but is not yet consumed. He says, hey, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to use you to deliver my people up from here. And Moses is pretty skeptical He's like, who are they to listen to me? Who, who are they? Who is Pharaoh? Who am I that Pharaoh would listen to me? Who am I that the people of God would listen to me and follow me? And you know what God says to Moses? What's in your hand? What's in your hand? Well, what is it? It's a shepherd's staff. Now, what's crazy about this the staff that's meant to guide and to, to navigate, to lead a flock of sheep, God tells him to throw it down on the ground. And when he throws it down, the staff is infused with God's power. See, in Ezra's hand, he has something similar. The word of God is like a shepherd's staff. 
that guides the people, that instructs the people, that directs the people what way they should go. But it's also a staff that is infused with power. Like we talked about already in Hebrews 4, it's, it's living, it's active, sharper than a two-edged sword. And in that power, the power of it is that it guides us, it teaches us. And what King Artaxerxes says to Ezra is, go build a society based upon that law, the law of Moses, the law of God, the word of God. And in this moment, it's really interesting, there is an elevation, at least in in the minds of men, there's an elevation of the word of God to the place of ultimate authority. Now, let me tell you this. The word of God has always been in the place of ultimate authority. But humanity does a pretty good job of resisting it. But here in this glimmering moment, it's elevated to the place of ultimate authority, even by the mouth of a pagan king. And he says, go and build a society and govern by the word of God. Would the law of the land be the law of God? And as you govern, you need magistrates. You need under shepherds. You need people. You need ministers to serve to see a thriving and healthy society. And so he says, go appoint magistrates. Again, this ties back to the Exodus story. Exodus 18, when Jethro comes to Moses and says, listen, you can't keep doing this by yourself, Moses. You got to get a, 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 a slew. You got to get a, a posse of dudes to help you navigate some of the complexities of life. Same thing, appoint magistrates. So you govern by the word of God, then you teach the word of God. Verse 25, you see this, to, to, you are to um, make the laws of the Lord your God. As people know them, you'll to judge by them, you'll to lead by them, and those who do not know the law of God, you shall teach. You teach the law of God. You make it known. You bring the word of God to bear on the lives of all people, those who know it and those who do not yet know it. You teach it. And he says, to judge with the word of the Lord. In verse 26, it says, whoever will not obey the law of the Lord of your God and the law of the king, let judgment be strictly executed on him. He appoints judges alongside magistrates, whether for death or for banishment or for confiscation of confiscation, conf, confiscation, that sounds right, of his goods or for imprisonment. It's to be the societal standard that you hold people to, and when they don't meet that standard, they are held responsible proportionately to their wrongdoing. There is consequence in one way or another. Now this here, when you boil it all down, what is the key element? What makes a Christian society? It's submission to the word of God. It's honoring of the word of God. It's obedience to the word of God. Because the word of God functions as the standard, as the guide, as the authority, the final arbiter on all matters. Not just useful for salvation, which in an evangelical world that tends to happen, the word of God is just what we need to get our foot in the door of heaven. We just use it for soteriological reasons. But when we use the word of God rightly, It bears weight in every single matter of life. Because something has to rule you. There's no such thing as a free, unrestricted, unfettered man. Something rules you. And you will either be ruled by God or you'll be ruled by tyrants. It's either Christ or chaos. Those are the only two options. Now, this is why Christians ought to not only desire a Christian society, but to work for a Christian society. Where power is distributed, power will corrupt, but only God can remain uncorrupted. He is the same today as he was yesterday and will be for eternity. He is good and perfect, loving and gracious, He is the essence of justice, of uprightness and righteousness. Only God can rule rightly. 
and God puts on flesh. And he dwells among us in the person of Jesus. And Jesus comes, and he's the only ruler to ever set foot on earth that doesn't run the risk of becoming a tyrant. Jesus is the leader that is both lion and lamb. Human rulers will either default to one or the other. To to lion, the, the savage that tears up and rips up and destroys everything that they touch or a lamb that's so pathetic and helpless they can't bring about any meaningful change. But Jesus is both strong and gentle. In fact, Jesus' strength is displayed in his weakness. And when he comes, he rules to elevate humanity, to enhance humanity, not to crush it. See, when we advocate for a Christian society, we are inviting people to place themselves in relationship to the only true and kind ruler. I mean, what what could be more loving than that? Every other human ruler is like a pharaoh. Every other human ruler is is, is a, a dictator of sorts. Every other, not just human, but any other desire, any other passion that we have that bubbles up from the flesh or from the world, it will run our life, whether it's our comfort, our money, our sexuality, anything, our family, it will run your life. And it will crush you. Jesus comes to elevate and to enhance humanity, not to crush it. This is why to live by the law of Christ is to experience the law of liberty. It's it's what leads to human flourishing. The law of the Lord is the only valid standard for true justice. Right now in this day and age, we've got all kinds of ideas about what social justice is, and we're importing those ideas from things that are not the word of God. And when we do that, we find ourselves with a version of justice that is really unjust. It will impair life. It will destroy life. It will crush us. The way of man, the way of the flesh, leads to death and decay. Just go to Psalm chapter, Psalm 1. You see the righteous man who flourishes and the wicked man who withers away. But the thing that sets the righteous apart from the wicked is the word of God. It's, it's drawing from the word of God like a tree planted near the streams of water, drawing from God. As we do so, we flourish. It works. The law of God works. It teaches us how to live with the grain of the cosmos. But we don't approach the word of God with just this purely pragmatic mentality like, okay, we're going to do this because it works and that's the end of the story. To walk according to God's ways means that we walk with God. We experience union with God. We experience relationship with God. It's not just to get things to work out in the end. It's to get God, to encounter God. It's to live life near the source of light, the source of life. Now, as Christians, that's what we rejoice over, that Jesus has brought us out of the domain of darkness and put us in the kingdom of the beloved Son. And because of that, we get to have access with God. We enter the throne room of grace with confidence. Why would you not want everybody else you know to have that kind of a blessing, that kind of a gift? Christian, we ought to want that for every human in our life. Because listen, everyone aches for this. Everybody aches for God. Though some people are unaware that's what they're actually aching for. They might turn to substance, they might turn to a career, they might turn to family, they might turn to whatever is out there, whatever the the, the world has to offer, turn to those things, trying to satisfy that longing in their heart. But it can't. I searched the world, it couldn't fill me. 
Everyone aches for this because we were made for it. We were made to have communion with God. But we lost that. At least we lost what it was intended to be in Genesis chapter 3. When Adam and Eve rebelled against God, when they, when they broke his law, the one, the one rule he had, they rebelled against it. And from that moment on, humanity has experienced this painful homesickness. We're longing for Eden. Try as we might. You can white-knuckle it all day. You can pull up your bootstraps. You can, you know, polish yourself up. Try as you might. You cannot obey yourself back into the Garden of Eden. You can't do it. Because we stand, because of the sin of our first father, Adam, because of the sins that we actively participate in, both of commission and omission, we stand condemned under sin as rule breakers. Now, this is where reading this part about the discipline of, of, of the, um, the judgment that comes upon those who do not obey the, Lord, the, the law of God and the law of the king, this is where things become a little bit frightful for us because we tend to put ourselves in the position of, hey, we're the good guys. We're wearing the white hats in this scenario and everybody else, they got the black hats on. But Paul says in Romans that under our first father, Adam, because one man's sin, we've all found ourselves under sin. We all wear the black hats. We're all deserving of God's wrath that stands against sinners. You, you see, it's interesting, the, the parallel here between what goes on at the end here, where he says, who doesn't obey the law of the Lord, let judgment be strictly executed on him, whether death the wages of sin is death or banishment. Adam and Eve were removed from the Garden of Eden, banished from the garden. Confiscation, all of the things that we had once humanity laid hold of as they lived in the garden, it's all been taken away. We're on the chop block under sin. That is, unless someone takes our place. No one is righteous, no, not even one. Unless someone takes our place, someone who is perfect, somebody who upholds the law, somebody who keeps the commandments, who, who loves the word of God, who obeys it, who teaches it. Who is that man? It's Jesus. Jesus lived the perfect life that we could not live and then dies the death that a sinner deserves to die. He was nailed to the cross for our failures, for our rebellion. Jesus became our substitute. Now this gets to the main reason why every Christian should want to see the word of God come to bear on our society. One of the functions of the law is that it functions like a mirror. It shows us where we have failed. It shows us where sin has distorted humanity. And it reveals our big need for a big savior. The law points us to the reality that we need a savior. A society that pushes against the word of, the, of God, that pushes it to the side, a society that ignores Jesus and his lordship will lead to an inhumane society. It's Christ or chaos. It'll perpetuate the brokenness of the world. But because the word was made flesh and dwelt among us, because the word of God manifest in the person and work of Jesus was destroyed. He was broken for us so that we could be mended. He experienced the separation of the Father so that we could be reunited to God, that we could have what we were longing for. The word of God proclaims the gospel, the work of Christ. Therefore, 
the work of the church ought to be to mirror the work of Ezra. There are a lot of parallels here. The church should study, love, do, teach the word of God. Not just the commandments, but how it teaches us we need a savior that is met in Christ. We need to have the word of God come to bear so greatly upon our life that our homes operate underneath the lordship of Jesus, that our missional communities operate under the lordship of Jesus, our church operates under the lordship of Jesus, our city operates under the lordship of Jesus, our society, until the cosmos operates under the lordship of Jesus. This, this is what gospel advance looks like. I, I don't expect for this to happen overnight. This is a lifelong thing that as Christians we give ourselves to, not just in this generation, but the generations to come. And by God's grace, incrementally, we will see more and more it becoming on earth as it is in heaven. Like Ezra was commanded to do it by King Artaxerxes, we too are commanded, not by a Persian king, not by a pagan king, but the king, the king of kings, the Lord of lords. Go and make disciples of all nations. Go Work for kingdom advance. Go bring reformation. Now, how do we bring reformation? I'm closing up here. How do we bring about reformation? It starts with worship. When you know the, the word of God, the word of God has, has revealed to you who God is and what God has done in the personal work of Jesus, you cannot help but be moved into doxology, moved into worship, just like Ezra is here in verse 27. He says, blessed be the Lord. Whenever you see that, that's, just, that's worship bursting out of the soul of somebody. Blessed be the Lord, the God of our fathers, who put such a thing as this into the heart of the king to beautify the house of the Lord that is in Jerusalem and who extended to me his steadfast love, his hased before the kings and his counselors, before all the king's mighty officers. Ezra experiences the hased, the, the steadfast love of God, faithful after generation after generation. He sees God's sovereignty. And what we see when we look at the word of God, we see God's hased, his steadfast love from generation to generation, not just to the Jews, but to the Gentiles as he grafts us in as children of Abraham. We see God's sovereignty, how the hand of God worked throughout human history to bring out the redemption of anybody and everybody who cries upon the name of the Lord. And the word of God reveals to us the person and work of Jesus, and when we see that, we worship. Now, what you don't realize, every Sunday when we come in here, we're protesting. This is a protest. We're protesting the world, the flesh. We're protesting anything that runs contrary to God's word. That's part of what it means to be Protestant. Protestant, the, the word protest is in there. That we're going against anything that's not of the word of God and aligning ourselves, we're reforming ourselves to the word of God. That's what we do when we worship. That's the first step. Fathers, are you setting the example for your family in worship? Not, not just here in this room, but in, in your home, when you're on the go? Is worship a central piece of your life? If it's not, then, then you're not experiencing the word of God as you are intended to. Jesus is inviting you deeper. And as you experience the word of God and the person and work of Jesus, when you see what he's done, you're worshiping and praising, we take courage. Verse 28, check this out. After experiencing the steadfast love of the Lord, we say, I took courage for the hand of the Lord my God was upon me, and I gathered leading men from Israel to go up with me. Ezra took courage, he took action, he worked. He gathered men for him to go back with him to Jerusalem, leading men who can really shape a culture. What's he doing? When we take action, we are setting the sails. 
So that if God's spirit were to blow, if the hand of God were to rest upon us, man, we would just be taken off by it. That's what kind of action we take. Set the sails. Wait for God to blow. Pray for God to blow. In the meantime, we work to reform and to revive. Now, this is part of this, to gather the flock, to gather those men. When Paul talks to the Corinthians, he says, listen, none of you were powerful. None of you were of noble birth. None of you were wise in the world's eyes. But God chose you. He chose what was foolish in the world to shame the wise. He chose what was weak to show off his power. Jesus is doing the same thing today. See, there is no bar for you to be this leading man or woman, some sort of upstand. Jesus says, hey, the weak, the weary, the mourning, the sorrowful, come to me. Come find what you're looking for. And when we love the word of God, we embrace the word of God, and the word of God goes out from, from inside out. It has this effect from our homes to our missional communities to our church into the city. And little by little, God is making all things new. He's bringing reformation. Church, let us not only pray for that, and we gotta pray for that on our knees, but give ourselves to the work. Take courage. Act. Set the direction. Set the sails so the Spirit of God would blow for our good and for his glory. Father, we thank you that your vision for this world is so much greater than our piddly little vision. I pray that you would give us a biblical vision, a vision that is set by the word of God to not just see reformation happen in our homes, but yes, that in our church, yes, that, but in our city. That the blessing that rests upon the church, the word of God that richly dwells within us here, the, the word of Christ would, would ooze out of us, that grace and truth would be made known here in the Quad Cities and far beyond. Would you be honored in this? Would our worship testify to the supremacy of Christ who put on our sin, who bore our shame on the cross, that we would be reconciled? We love you, Jesus, for this. We thank you that you've given us a meal to remember this transaction, this once and for all sacrifice. That You've brought us out of darkness into your light. You, we were once far off, and now we're brought near. Take that truth, sink it in deep. For your glory, for our good, it's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.